Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. BJJ Mental Models, episode 259. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I'm here with a first-timer, Dorothy Dow. How's it going, Dorothy? Hi, Steve. It's going good. How are you? I am doing well. Happy to connect. Uh, we've been talking for a while about getting you on the show here. We were introduced through uh, some mutual friends, Meg and Margot. But hey, why don't you tell everyone a bit about yourself? Your story is really interesting, and I think that's going to inform the topic of the day that we get into here. I am a jiu-jitsu black belt, originally from Health Gracie in the Bay Area in California. But I've been traveling around the whole world for the past seven-ish years now. And um, I think three months ago, I moved to AOJ and have been training there and dedicating the next year to full-on competing at black belt adult level before I trot off into the sunset (laughs) in my master's one division that I'll be in next year. Nice. And is this a new thing for you being a full-time competitor? So like full on, yes. Like I've been competing pretty consistently with the exception of COVID, but not exactly with a coach or any sort of structured training. I've had some competition success, but I feel like I've never had all the tools I needed to be successful or wanted to dedicate that and stop moving around until this year specifically. I got to ask, because I know that the nomadic lifestyle is so popular with a lot of full-time people. You know, we talked about Margot Ciccarelli, friend of the show, known for at least previously being a nomad. Uh, I think she's settled down a bit, but she still travels quite a lot. What was the impetus for the nomadic lifestyle? Was this something that you were doing for jujitsu or was it a a work thing and it just kind of harmoniously worked with jujitsu as well? So no, it wasn't a work thing. In fact, I quit my job to just travel around and it wasn't specifically for jujitsu either. I just had some like pre like early 20s existential crisis and like uh, my first solo trip ever was to Thailand. And there I met a bunch of jujitsu people who are older, but like are entrepreneurs and doing their own sort of thing. And I saw that kind of lifestyle was possible. So I basically just quit my job to kind of move to Asia and kind of figure out if I could also start my own business in some sort of way. And that eventually turned into me just doing jujitsu all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So After that, the travel bug bit me pretty hard, and I've just been doing that ever since. Nice, nice. Now, it sounds like you've kind of settled down, at least temporarily, and you've got a home now at AOJ. Maybe walk me through that. How did that decision come about? I mean, I'm guessing a big part of it was, like you said, the desire to commit to consistent high-level training, to have a coach so that you can really perform at your best. But anything else specifically about the decision or why you chose that team in particular? 
I compete in the adult black belt light feather division and AOJ, our training room right now for the women's team, almost, you know, half of my division, at least the top players are there. So it's been an amazing treat to be able to train with everyone. I've also wanted to go to AOJ for a really long time just because, you know, I know Guy has put in so much effort into building out a curriculum and training structure that would work for me really well in particular. So it's just been like a long time coming that I've wanted to make the pilgrimage. And, you know, as I said, I've been traveling around for like seven years and it just gets exhausting. Like people really romanticize like traveling and like seeing all these new places. But at some point, like I'm 29 now turning 30. Um, I just feel myself wanting to kind of like you know, stay in one place for more than like three to six months. So it's been really nice having a routine and just being kind of generally boring, I suppose. Nice. Yeah. Hey, I can definitely relate. I mean, as an older guy with a family, I barely leave my home area here. I mean, being boring can be, well, it can be boring sometimes, but it also comes with its advantages, right? It's nice to have consistency. If you've got a long-term goal that you're working towards, eliminating any distraction can really help, right? Because then you can throw yourself completely into the work and what you're trying to get done, administrative distractions and yeah, traveling as fun as it can be, it is a chore, right? There there's a lot of work involved and a lot of cost involved in traveling consistently. So I feel your pain. Yeah, especially in the post-COVID world, like it's not as easy as it used to be. And I've definitely just really enjoyed being in one place for a while. And um, especially right when I first got to AOJ, I was like finishing up. I had like a, you know, pre-settling in crisis as well. And so I decided to hop around like three different continents in the course of two weeks and I just absolutely died. So that was like traumatic enough to where I'm just going to stay here for now. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. Now, something that we had talked about before we hit the record button here is uh, some of the changes that you've experienced switching to a full-time pro comp team like AOJ, where they've got people who are kind of more in line with your body type and body size, people who you would be likely to encounter in uh, an actual competition division. And that's always an interesting question I like to unpack. Like, what are the differences when you're training with people much bigger than you versus people who actually are within your, your weight class? And I know you had mentioned to me previously that before going to AOJ, basically all your training partners were giants compared to you. I'd love to unpack that and what that experience looked like beforehand and how things have also changed now that you've moved to a full-time comp team that has people in your weight class. So yeah, like I mentioned, I started at Health Gracie in the Bay Area and uh, that's about as old school jiu-jitsu as you can get. So the game I initially learned was very like, you know, in, I guess, fundamental in a way. I really don't like that word, but like, you know, old school half guard, closed guard, old school pressure passing. And then uh, even when I was traveling, the most I could get in terms of female training partners was like one or two, not always my size, not always the same skill level. So it was mostly, yeah, larger guys that I was training with. And the game that I developed works really well, I found, for people who are bigger than me. And I never really got direct feedback on how, you know, my game would work against women my size and skill level until I went to competition. 
that wasn't very often, you know, especially living abroad, there's not so many competitions, so you don't get as much feedback. So until I moved to AOJ, I thought that like, oh, my pressure passing works really well. <laughs> but it works really well against bigger guys who aren't super flexible and fast. So that's what I've really been trying to modify the past few months is like, my guard has to completely change. My defenses have to completely change. My passing style has to be a lot tighter or faster. So that's what I've kind of been exploring and uh, getting a lot better at really fast. Thanks to like all the training partners who like all of a sudden are on the same page as me. They can train all day long um, and give me really good feedback every single day. This is funny that you bring that up because that's maybe a, a bit of a misconception that people have in jujitsu, this belief that bigger people are just going to be better at everything across the board and that it's just some universal disadvantage if you're smaller. But my experience aligns with yours as well. I mean, I've had to spar with training partners who are much larger than me, and I have found that although they definitely have advantages, particularly when they're on top, when you get them onto the floor the whole game just collapses like a house of cards. And I agree with you completely. Um, pressure passing, getting in tight and crowding them, that is like death to a bigger person. If they are on the ground, on their back, and they've got a small person trying to aggressively pressure pass their guard, it's so much easier. The harder people I find to pass are people who are smaller, agile, better hip movements, better guard retention movements. Because with those people, you know, if you get 80% of the way through a pass, that's not good enough. They can still recover. Whereas with a bigger person, I mean, if you're able to clear their leg, you're probably going to complete the pass without issue. And like, for example, Jessa just had her one championship fight. I was telling her that like, I feel like most girls who would fight her, they're never this, the like bigger one in the room. Like she's a bit shorter than me. So like I have a lot of trouble like dealing with shorter people because I've never trained with shorter people than me. Like I'm 5'2". So it's just like adjusting to that body type is really difficult if you don't get to train with it every day. Like for me, it's like if I'm trying to knee slice a guy, they're just going to be like, oh, her leg was there and then it wasn't there. But like on, let's say someone shorter than me, like they can catch my leg still. So it's been something very different that I've had to adjust to. Now, we can unpack exactly how you do this in a bit, and I want to hear this. I want to hear what your big person game plan looked like in comparison to the game plan that you're putting together now and and why you feel these revisions are better. But the first thing I want to ask is, do you think it's really possible to be kind of great at both a game that targets bigger opponents versus a game that targets people your own size. And I ask this because just pulling experience from my own jujitsu journey at some point, I mean, I'm not a competitor. For me, I just want to be effective at jujitsu given the constraints around uh, how much time I can put into training. And I'm usually going to be the smaller person in a lot of cases. So for me, the important thing was I want a jujitsu game that works against big people. And what I wound up doing once I got to around brown belt was I actually wound up discarding a whole bunch of techniques that previously I had used quite a bit because I just didn't feel that I could successfully pull those off against people that are, you know, 60, 70 pounds bigger than me or more. And so now I play this game that is kind of size agnostic, but I have to admit it's not fully optimal, right? I mean, if I were going into a competition with this game plan, 
it wouldn't really be ideal because other people are going to have techniques that are, are much more effective against my particular size. But for me, this kind of universal approach has worked well given my jujitsu goals. I would like to know your thoughts on this. I mean, do you think it's possible to be truly great at beating up big people versus beating up people your own size? Or do you see these as two completely different skill sets? Well, I think that Yes, it's totally possible to do everything well, but that requires you to have like a very well-rounded game, which is a lot of time and effort. So I think it is totally possible to deal with both body types really well. In fact, I feel like the better I personally get at dealing with smaller people, that's the game that will work against everyone as opposed to just focusing on like, beating bigger people because like you have to be so much tighter with every single thing. If I can pressure pass, if I can over under like a five foot human being, there's no way I can't over under like a six foot one just because I can close the space so efficiently. From a guard perspective, I think it might be a bit different just because of the weight load on you. But from a pressure passing perspective, I do think like if I just develop a better passing game for smaller people, that is almost like one-to-one applicable to sparring with a bigger human being. And also like outside passing, for example, that's something I've been working on a lot. I think that's also something that would translate equally as well once I get a lot better at it, which is like the AOJ style passing is a lot of like, you know, chain passing, but also a lot of outside passing. So I think that will transition pretty much one-to-one. Got it. Well, definitely excited to see that. I mean, at this point in time, I would love to unpack if you can share, you know, what did your old game plan look like and what kind of evolutions are you making now that you've got reasonable sized people in the room to train with? Yeah. So my guard before worked pretty well, like in competition and out. I played a lot of Lasso Spider back in the day. My hands are a bit arthritic now, so I've kind of moved away from that. But I really like half guard, K guard, kind of like modified X from the bottom. In Nogi, I I love leg locks. Like I will spam them all day. (laughs) That hasn't changed much. I'm just tightening things up. From the top, I really liked like over under passing, like headquarters, like pressure body lock passing. And I found that there's also a difference in Gi and Nogi. Like that style of passing for me in Nogi is still working pretty well. But uh, in Gi... Not so much. Like I've had to change a lot. So that's where all the like fast outside passing and like chain passing has come into play more. Got it. Now, some of the things you mentioned, I mean, talking about using K guard, that is is a very classic guard that's great for people who are smaller. The idea of getting into leg entanglements, again, kind of like a classic thing that I would expect from a smaller grappler. Tell me a bit about half guard here. What kind of half guard do you like to play? And I mean, depending on the type, I'm always curious to know when you're in there with much larger people, do you have issues with them just smashing you and pinning your shoulders to the mat? Or are you playing a variant of half guard that just renders that unlikely? So I actually found that my half guard works better against bigger people because I can get under them. But like I said, at AOJ, they do a lot more outside passing. So it's really hard to get to their legs at all. So I'm kind of more using half guard now as a fallback option. Like I don't want to end up there. I've been really trying hard to like not even get into half guard because that means my open guard has failed. Whereas with bigger people, I'm totally comfortable like playing close distance because there's just more space for me to squirm underneath or around or to the back. So 
I'm using half guard now more as like, a, oh, I really messed up here. But like, this is a good kind of fallback to have. Like, everyone should have good mount escapes, back escapes. Now I view half guard as the same thing. I'm glad that I'm good at it, <laughs> but I, I'm trying to move away from it as well. Now, you also talked about butterfly uh, modified X guard. I would love to dig into this as well. These are classic jujitsu positions for smaller people, right? This actually is very kind of similar to my game as well. But maybe explain to me a bit how that fits into the pattern. And also, if you've noticed any differences playing those against much larger people. Yeah, so I can enter into that position specifically on bigger people a lot easier when they're standing. And um, other gyms, no one, almost no one will double pull, which in competition is almost like the go-to for my weight division. And here it's usually the other way around. So it's kind of a different scenario that I have to use those in because we're both seated. So it's just more like from there, we're both playing that position and we're both trying to get to the back or leg locks. Whereas like at other gyms I've trained at, it's more like they're kind of in a standing passing position and it's actually easier for me to enter into the legs from there. Yeah, yeah. I very much prefer these days playing kind of like a coiled up seated guard. And usually that means I'm going for some variant of butterfly or I'm going for instep, aka shin to shin guard. I'm just trying to stay tight and compact. And I find that works really well against all body types because against bigger people, if you're tight and compact, it's really hard for them to flatten you and smash you and put their weight down on you, which is what they want to do. Against smaller people, it's harder for them to complete the pass because they can move as fast as they want. But as long as you keep coiled up and you close your elbow knee space, it's very hard for them to finalize the actual pass. I used to find when going against really, really uh, fast and nimble people, I would try to match them speed for speed when they were going into that like crazy pressure speed passing game. And I found that that can be very hard to do when you're the one sitting on the ground. So now my focus is usually just trying to stay tight and compact so that no matter what they do, I can prevent a guard pass. And ideally, like you said, I love the same thing. I love getting in underneath people um, against bigger people. I find that is the especially if they're standing, that is the best thing to do, because like you said, if they're much taller than you, it's just I find it unlikely that you're going to be able to pull them back down to the floor by grabbing their lapel or something. But the downside to them standing up is they give you just a, a wide open pathway to the legs. Right. And I don't care how big someone is, if you can get under them and entangle their legs immediately, they're at a massive disadvantage. Yeah. When I first started playing K guard was actually during COVID. That's when I really took a deep dive into studying the position and then um I was finding that I would just get like knee bar entries immediately and like all these leg lock entanglements immediately and all my training partners at the time were a lot taller and then so now especially it's nogi season right now and we're doing a lot of nogi so I've been trying to figure out how to transition my seated guard into nogi a bit better because the goal of like a lot of the passing at AOJ is not to actually pass most of the time but it's to get to the back or force your opponent to turtle to get to the back so we're not necessarily looking for like side control or anything so that's been a big weakness that I've been trying to shut down because like even if you stay tight if the, it's easy to make you turtle and then from there get crab ride hooks or like double under hooks and take the back. So I'm not so worried about like getting past anymore, but just getting my back taken. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This is something that I do find. I mean, I am kind of a notorious turtle player, but that is the issue, right? A lot of people, if you are playing a seated guard, they can get behind you relatively easily. Whereas I find, I mean, if you're playing something like K-Guard, your shoulders are kind of protected, right? There's no obvious way for someone to get to your back from there. Whereas if you are playing a seated butterfly guard, it's possible, right? It's not necessarily going to be easy, but it is definitely possible. The thing is, for to get to K-Guard, it's like, you have to kind of open up the top person a bit, which requires a bit of extension sometimes, which is when they catch you. But it's just about kind of like timing it, which is hard because each person is waiting for the other person to overextend, right? And if neither person is willing to do that, it's just like kind of a stalemate and no one's doing anything. Actually, it was funny because like I remember training with Margot and Nogi a while back in Japan and she commented that I had also a really weird turtle game where I will turtle immediately, like um, willingly, because I have like very good attacks from there. Whereas people traditionally see turtle as a very defensive position. So again, back to the like the gi versus no gi thing, like that works really well for no gi, especially with the rule set. But in gi, it's just like, don't do that. It's just all around a bad idea to turtle so easily. But I have found in uh, in Nogi to turtle, it's, it's totally fine as long as you have good leg log entries from there. Yeah, you have to be careful uh, turtling in the gi versus Nogi. In Nogi, I mean, if the person cannot get some sort of connection in your elbow knee space, like if they can't get a seat belt or they can't get a, their hooks in, it's going to be very hard for them to maintain that connection to your back. Whereas in the gi, I mean, man, you can play the best turtle game you want, but if they get like a strong horse collar grip on you or they latch onto the fabric by your hips or something, it's just you can do everything right as the turtle player, but it's still so easy for them to just pull you back to where they want you to be. It's a very precarious position. And I find if I'm trying to play turtle in the gi, what often happens is I have to assume that even if I do everything right, there's the possibility I just might get pulled back into the position that they want me to be in. And so it takes a few attempts and I have to have my defenses up all the time because all it takes is is one bad grip. They can pull me up, get the chest to back connection, and then I'm just absolutely screwed. And in a room full of back take specialists, I've just found I, I just can't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like it, It's just not a good idea. Well, you know, you talked about contraction and extension. And this is something that I'm always interested in, this kind of debate about whether people like to stay kind of coiled up in kind of like a small compact position or whether they prefer techniques where they have some sort of extension or or things intertwined, right? Where you see this a lot is with a a lot of uh, very classic gi-based open guards, for example, because so often there's like a push-pull mechanic going on and you've got to have a leg sticking out or an arm sticking out. And of course, the risk is, you know, whenever you extend something, yes, that is how you get power and that is how you generate movement and force, but... That's also how you give your opponent a handle. So it's kind of this delicate balancing act, right? Of, okay, when do I explode out of this defensive structure? And K-Guard is a great example of that. I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast. I'm not much of a K-Guard player, mostly because I'm always just terrified of something happening to my knee. (laughs) I've got got like this mental block about the position. I would want to get just your philosophy on this, about when to contract, when to extend, and how that informs your game as well. Yeah, so when I first started playing K-Guard, I was also very worried about my knees, but I I found like my own like the exact angles that I need to have and the feeling for it to where I could load up like 200 pound person 
and not really worry about the torque on my knees. It's just a matter of like angling specifically to your body type. So I don't find that I worry too much about my knees in K-Guard anymore. I I feel very structurally sound there. It's when you kind of, like you said, release to go to, let's say, the back take matrix or something where things can go a little wrong is when you release. So it's a lot about tempo changing, I find, which is also another big theme I've been working on is just like playing, playing really tight, getting a feeling for like when your opponent is ready to go or where where they're actually kind of like taking a break and then you explode. I think my finals match, Nogi Pans this year, I thought was an interesting example of that. It wasn't K-Guard, it was half-guard. Like she was about to pass from like a very heavy high tripod and I was just clamped onto her ankle basically. And my thought process was just like, okay, she's going to pass my guard straight into mount if I don't do something right now. So I basically just like bridge straight to like, you know, the sky as hard as I could as sort of like I'm initiating this potential pass or sweep instead of letting her do it so that applies to every position basically is just like feeling when your opponent is like being patient and then going or waiting for them to go first which usually doesn't end well for you yeah 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 maybe share your philosophy on this because this is a a hot topic that i love to unpack here and get people's different perspectives on when you talk about tempo you know on the podcast we've always talked about the importance of dictating the pace and i know that People have sometimes different definitions of what tempo means to them. Um, We've spoken extensively to Margot about this. We actually have a a whole premium series we did with her on BJJ Mental Models Premium about her thoughts. But tell me your thoughts on this. You know, when you talk about tempo, what does that mean to you specifically and, and why is it important? And also, does that answer change depending on the type of opponent you're facing? If it's someone your own weight class or or maybe someone much larger? I find that tempo matters a lot more with people my size because like, like, let's say I'm on top, I'm fighting to get into the right like structural position to initiate the pass. But if I'm fighting to get into that position at the same pace, the person on bottom knows exactly what I'm setting up. So it's like I could get into like a strong headquarters position and they're like, oh, she's going to knee slice or she's going to leg drag, um, depending on what pace I'm going at. But it's like, you have to kind of feel like when your opponent's starting to like recognize that and then you have to beat it like half a second before. And then from guard, it's like when they're setting up the pass on you, you have to be able to kind of off balance them the other way. You have to kind of, it's just like foresight into what direction they're going. That's basically like how, what dictates your tempo change, right? Yeah, yeah. My personal feeling has always been When you're in there against a much larger person, I mean, obviously, if you can control the tempo, that's going to be a major advantage. But my bigger concern against a larger person is managing who has leverage over the other person, right? The worst thing I have found against a bigger person is letting them get easy grips on me. Because with a bigger person, I mean, they can do everything wrong and I can do everything right and they can still succeed just by virtue of the fact that they're stronger than me. I mean, I have sparred with people where I had what I thought was a good solid defense, but once they got a grip on me, they literally were able to just yank me into whatever position they wanted in the least technical way possible, right? Which is, 
it's frustrating and your instructor is never going to call that good jujitsu. But look, sometimes it works, right? You give up enough of a, a size advantage. And for me against a larger opponent, that is always my number one priority is making sure they don't get their power grips on me. I need to be constantly blocking the grips. And if this means I have to play conservative and I even if it means I lose the tempo, I'm still sort of okay with it because I'm expecting against a bigger person, they're going to batter me around like a beach ball. That's just kind of part of the game. But against a smaller person, it's very different against a smaller person. I mean, I don't want them to get grips on me, but I do know that because they don't have a crazy power advantage, I can still survive against a lot of grips. My concern against a smaller person is more being on the bad end of a tempo exchange and always being one step behind them and getting forced into reactive mode. So that's kind of just an observation I have personally had, which is against bigger people, I'm more scared about losing grips against smaller people or people my own size. I'm often more concerned about losing the tempo battle. Does that track and jive with your experience or am I out to lunch on this? No, totally. Like the roles you have with people your size are probably a lot more fast paced than if there is a big size difference, unless you're playing super loose with a bigger person. I think that's why I kind of developed a more like old school pressure pass style before, because that means I've controlled the inside space and I can just like hold on. It's not like I'm super weak compared to like bigger people. It's like, if you let me get into inside space, I'm clinging on for my life. And like, usually it's successful. And I know it's going to be a grind. If I do outside passing on a bigger person, they're usually a lot longer than me and they can just kind of kick at me. And like, like you said, like toss me around like a beach ball. So yeah, like in sparring with bigger people, I've also been a bit more conservative because I feel like if I up the tempo, they up the tempo and that's where injury happens which has happened quite a bit to me before too. So yeah, like it definitely, there is a big difference in how I play tempo wise with different sized people and skilled. I love that point about consciously managing when you are escalating the tempo rather than it just kind of happening subconsciously, because that is absolutely a trap that you can fall into. I have had this happen where if I'm in there and my opponent goes into hardcore aggressive mode, it's very easy for your fight or flight response to kind of get triggered without you realizing it. And before you know it, you can start reacting differently from how you would in a more calm situation. And yeah, to your point, I have found that if the other person dials up the attack speed significantly, sometimes my speed just kind of raises to match them. And that's not always a good idea because, you know, you always want to be in control of your own game plan and sometimes being more conservative is better. But also, like you said, when both people are going at a very high speed, that's often when injuries happen. And so you've got to be careful with that. And uh, I'd say a big lesson I've learned in my later years is to exercise restraint. And so if I'm sparring with someone who is really going for it, right, and either they are using full strength or they are using full speed Part of my job is to have the discipline to control my fight or flight response and not just escalate to match them. That has been a challenge that I really didn't learn until later in my jujitsu career. But now that I do that, you know, having that patience and being calm when your training partner is trying to kill you, right? That that is just such a useful skill set because it's very hard to win an exchange if you're in fight or flight mode. You just can't think rationally at that point. 
Oh, completely. Like your decision making just goes out the door. You know, I've also been trying to be more mindful of that myself. Something actually kind of interesting that I've been playing around with is that a lot of guys have told me even that like, I have this weird like strong grip strength. I don't know why. I mean, I train, so therefore I do. But it kind of freaks out some guys at first if I initiate the grip exchange like full power. Like they're just like, oh, she's strong. I'm going to freak out now. So I've been kind of toying with like the in, in the initial grip exchange, all grips super soft. And then that puts them off guard. And then I start going like that's a tempo change, like or the even like the strength tempo change, in a, I suppose you could call. And then I'll have the like positional advantage immediately if I don't start off like 100% strength. Whereas if I grip them like death grip right away, they're like, oh, I'm fighting like someone really strong and then they start going and I just die. (laughs) So that's kind of an interesting psychological kind of experiment I've been running, I guess, on my own. (laughs) (laughs) I can actually back that up. Uh, Rob Bernanke from uh, BJJ Concepts and Island Top Team, we've talked about that and he refers to it as uh, regulated tension versus dynamic tension. I mean, fancy words, but basically regulated tension by that, we I mean like grabbing on and holding on for dear life and you're constantly squeezing and you're constantly tight. Whereas if you're being more dynamic, you're kind of, you know, kind of like how in judo, you're loose, you're loose, you're loose, and then wham, you hit them with a ton of force just out of nowhere. It's like cracking a whip. And that is just, that's way more effective, right? This is a very common rookie mistake in jujitsu is just having tight grips all the time. Not a good thing to do, right? Because it, it can telegraph your movements. It can give people an understanding of exactly what kind of strength they're dealing with. And also if the person is always just holding on for dear life, psychologically, I know they're afraid, right? And that gives me an edge. Whereas a much more experienced grappler will be loose most of the time. And then when it's time to make something happen, they'll just hit you with a ton of force all at once. It's like rather than consistently squeezing and and applying the same force, it's loose, loose, loose. And then they just compress all of that force like a whip cracking and they just hit you with it. And yeah, for passing, I find that to be very helpful too. I like to have very loose grips with passing until... I get the look I want and then I execute into the pass and then it's like smash mode. Yeah, he's been very focused on that lately. We've we've been working on like submission chaining and um, he's basically been saying like you need to be very like aware of what your opponent's feeling versus like the actual technique you're doing. It's just like, are they relaxed? If they are, why? it's not on. So it's just like, instead of like worrying so much about like, am I getting the exact right thing? It's like, is my opponent uncomfortable for submissions? For passing, it's like, is my opponent off guard? Like you have to, it's more of a feeling than an actual like technique. And we also just had some older judo Japanese champion come by and they actually taught like a a little judo seminar, which was really cool. And um, he also stressed like, especially in stand-up, it's like their grips, obviously judo players' grips are freakishly strong. But like he's like, when you're standing, you're loose, you're loose, you're loose, and then you go. And he was just tossing everybody onto their backs, you know? So yeah, it's like tempo change has to do with both speed and like you said, uh, strength dynamics. Was that the term? Tension. Yeah, tension. The way that Rob Bernanke describes it, and again, I'm using his words here. He talks about regulated tension, which basically means consistent squeeze, consistent force, 
versus dynamic tension, which is more like a whip, right? Loose, 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 then wham, you hit someone. I'm totally stealing that. I I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a great term. And I think it makes sense in a lot of ways. But the thing I love about these kinds of topics and like what you mentioned, Guy was explaining, you know, so many people in jujitsu get overly focused on the mechanical bits. Like, what are the steps to do this technique? Where does my arm go? Where does my leg go? But I don't think people think enough about the strategic and psychological side of things. As an example, right, BJJ Mental Models, we've got a database of some of the, what I believe to be the most important ideas or mental models in the sport. There's well over a hundred of them on our website, and I categorize those, and mechanics is only one piece of the puzzle, right? There's all sorts of other aspects that you need to be thinking about beyond just the mechanics of jujitsu. There is psychology, strategy, learning and skill acquisition. There's a social component as well, right? How you interact with your team and your training partners. There's so much more to the sport than just the technical side of things. And I mean, I think everyone has probably felt that before. I have definitely sparred with people where I can feel like, okay, I know my jujitsu is better than this person, but I'm still struggling like crazy because they're really good at other things, whether it be faking me out or getting in my head or just, you know, annoying me with pressure. There's so many different ways that you can be successful in jujitsu beyond just the mechanics. I think that's a very interesting bit about knowing how to read your opponent's intentions because it's like a superpower in jujitsu if you can do it. Oh, for sure. And um, it's been so helpful, like kind of seeing firsthand how Guy teaches because the way the classes are split up, a lot of the classes are technique based, which is also very important. But the way he teaches the fundamentals class is very conceptual. And so it's not really like technique based at all. He stresses like, I'm going to show you something, but none of the details. I want you to get this concept. And I want to stress that everyone's bodies and styles are different. So you need to figure out your own path to the ending position that we want, you know? And it's been so helpful to kind of learn that way. Yeah. When I realized that there is a level of instruction out there that works that way, it changed my jujitsu a lot. I mean, I used to train at a much more traditional gym and it was very much The instructor gives you all of the steps and you have to follow them exactly. And the problem is, I mean, for a variety of reasons we don't need to get into here, that just doesn't work very well most of the time. You know, no two people are the same. And so giving people the flexibility to find out what works for them is is so key. So yeah, I agree with you. I much prefer that idea of just giving people like the broad strokes picture of, of why we're doing what we're doing and letting them fill in the bits themselves. Yeah, I'm also like, I know you've talked to Greg Soders and like you guys do a lot of discussion on like the ecological approach. And um, I found that in a way, like the training we do at AOJ is a lot of that, but it's not like so intentional. Like there's a lot of talking, like which I know, like the ecological approach doesn't really adopt as much. But um, there's a we do more specifics than like drilling without resistance so it's like it's kind of adopted principles of that with just like observations by Guy on like competition strategy so it's kind of like a hybrid model I think without really like 
being conscious of what the ecological approach is, which is has been really interesting for me to observe as well. Yeah, it's funny. We actually just talked to uh, Lachlan about that on the last episode. It's very much a hot topic in the community right now. It's an interesting one because, I mean, the move away from just raw technical instruction and into something a bit more open is not necessarily new. That's been going on for quite a while in jujitsu, but uh, the introduction of the actual science behind why that might work is a relatively new addition. And I definitely agree. There are hard limits to how good you can get if you're just following orders, right? Because the big challenge I had for a long time was my instructor's jujitsu. The type of stuff that he did was just not remotely aligned with the type of jujitsu I wanted to do. And none of the techniques he ever showed felt right to me because just of a completely different style of jujitsu, different goals. You know, a big part of jujitsu, once you get to a, to a more experienced level is not even just, you know, learning all of the techniques that work, but it's about kind of carving out what your jujitsu identity is and what kind of player you want to be that aligns very much with your goals in the sport and your philosophy. And I just found that, you know, most of the stuff that I was getting shown, I would just was never using. And then at some point I switched instructors and it was like night and day. Suddenly I found someone who was, you know, they were giving me openness and they were showing me things that kind of aligned broadly with my goals. And it just completely changes the field once you you find an instructor that really kind of like aligns and has that method and gives you room within the sport to play and develop your own identity. Oh, for sure. And something I've experienced kind of traveling around different gyms is that I've encountered my fair share of schools that are very like, okay, today we're learning passing daily Hiva. This is exactly how you do it. If you don't do it, I'm going to come up to you and tell you you're wrong. <laughs> and I've had a lot of like, I've been, I've drilled with like lower belts who will like in those schools who will try to fix the way I pass daily Hiva because it's not how they were taught. And I think that way of thinking is really like kind of like a handicap to learning. So the places I've really enjoyed training at are either like the instructor gives us that openness you were speaking about, or they give me the flexibility to kind of structure my own training outside of class time. And then that's where I started really playing around with like the ecological approach games and like doing my own thing. I think that's really been helpful towards my development as a jiu-jitsu athlete. Got it. Now, one other thing I just want to ask you about here, as someone who's kind of transitioned from training mostly with bigger, larger opponents to training with a higher caliber of athlete within your own weight class and division. You know, it sounds like, of course, what you're doing now is really working for you, but it is such a common problem for smaller people in the sport. I mean, often, you know, women are going to be the one who have to deal with this most just due to size discrepancies, but not always. I have a friend, uh, Josh, out of Georgia. He weighs about 130 pounds, 140 pounds, runs a gym. Not uncommon for him to be given up 100 pounds to the other people in the class, right? Would you recommend for people that they do spar with bigger people? Because this is always kind of a debate, and I know everyone has a different feeling on this. Some people will say, and I kind of tend to fall into this camp, look, it's probably good to spar with bigger people because if your interest is self-defense, you want to learn how to fight that battle. But on the other hand, not everyone shares that goal, right? If you want to be a competitor, training exclusively with bigger people, as you talked about earlier, it can warp your jujitsu into something else. So I would want to get your feeling on, you know, if you were starting fresh, if you're a white belt, you show up at a gym, everyone outweighs you by a significant margin. Is that even useful training or are you better off in the situation that you're in now? 
So I 100% advocate for training with different body sizes, depending on the skill level and attitude of the bigger person. I think like a really kind of tough thing to deal with in a lot of beginner classes is that everyone's a white belt. And, um, you know, I'm sure you know, like at the beginning, there's no way most people can regulate like what they're doing, like strength wise, like everyone's kind of flailing around a bit. And I think that leaves you at a high risk for injury. So in that specific case, I would not recommend that. But if you have like upper belts to roll with who are bigger than you, then yeah, totally. Like everyone has feedback to give. And I think there's like a big value in sparring with different people, if not just for technique, for like the social aspect, everyone has different inputs. You get different points of view, which I think is really important. If you're a competitor at a high level, I think that also holds like a unnecessary injury risk. Like right now, I would prefer not to, especially in the gi when they know I'm a black belt and they're just going to try to rip my head off at a different gym. I think that also is a bit unnecessary. But in general, it's like I used to be a women's coach when I lived in Shanghai And I had to really look out for the girls in the team because like all the guys are bigger and like the ones that are newer kind of went a little crazy. And I found that the best way to kind of navigate that is through like direct communication, which often a lot of jujitsu people may not be amazing at that skill yet. But so it's just like sometimes the guys don't understand. They're not used to rolling with smaller people. So if you see them going crazy, you have to tell them and teach them exactly how to roll with smaller people and then that just like ups the level of the training room for everyone right and it's also helpful to the bigger person because it's kind of back to that flight or flight mentality it helps them dial that back a bit and if you know how to roll with smaller people that helps your jujitsu as well so overall i would say in 90 percent of cases i would say rolling with different size people is beneficial with the exception of a super beginner class and if you're like a tiny high level competitor trying not to get injured day to day. I fully agree with your assessment there. I mean, you know, speaking from the more experienced side of the room, right? When I'm rolling with brown or black belts, I am never concerned for my safety regardless of size. I just first of all because you know, I'm training casually. So the nice thing about when you're training casually in the gym, there's this kind of weird feeling out process where you first connect and you kind of jockey for grips a bit for 10 seconds. And both you and the other person are trying to figure out, okay, what kind of role is this? Is this like a a death match or is this just a casual Saturday role? And it, once both people kind of understand that, okay, we're just playing around here. If it's a brown or a black belt, I have no concerns about my safety, right? But nothing terrifies me more than a giant white belt who was inspired by the UFC to come and learn Brazilian jiu-jitsu and just wants to, you know, to learn to be a street fighter. And, you know, I, we talk about that as a joke. Honestly, a lot of guys who show up at the gym, they have no intention of being a raging asshole and hurting people. And they're probably not violent, but you put people in this situation for the first time it triggers that fight or flight. You know, a lot of these guys, like they don't understand their own power, right? I mean, jujitsu was a sport dominated by hobbyists. Most of these people don't have experience in street fights. They don't know how bad they can hurt someone smaller. And then you factor that with the fact that a lot of the smaller training partners, you know, they could come in with their own trauma, their own problems. There are a lot of people, they might've come into jujitsu for self-defense because something happened to them. Now, suddenly you've got some giant stranger trying to throw you around and I mean, for that 10% that you talked about, for those new white belts, 
My concern is always that, look, I think we run the risk of doing a lot of harm to our students and scaring them off before they have the chance to really develop because their early experiences are so negative, right? I mean, if you come into jujitsu, if you're a woman who's interested in self-defense and on day one, some giant roid monkey picks you up and power bombs you on your neck, are you, first of all, you might suffer damage, but second, are you really going to come back? Are you really going to see this through to the point where you realize actually it's not always like that? And this I want to get your opinion on is for those people, the smaller people who come in, what should their early classes look like to make them less scary and more productive so they do stick around and get over that hump so they don't get injured in their first few months and they do fall in love with the sport like all of us who have been doing it for so long? I think that's really like the responsibility of the coach, right, to kind of gauge the intensity of all the students in the room. That's why coaching is so difficult. And it's really their responsibility to kind of pick out the bigger people and teach them how to train with smaller people before they necessarily like know how to. Like, I can't count the number of women who've kind of been upset after like a guy roughhouses them a bit and they just end up thinking like oh that guy is like terrible to roll with he's such a spaz he's hyper aggressive he just wants to kill me whereas like all I had to do was go up to that guy explain and then he's just like oh I didn't even know like you know I will dial it back and figure out it's like everyone's kind of helping each other and I think it's ultimately the coach's responsibility to vocalize that to the entire room because you know not everyone's gonna have that ability right away yeah i mean especially for most people who come into jujitsu and it's their their first experience doing anything like this right most people don't come into jujitsu with five years of high level wrestling experience or mma experience this is kind of their first rodeo into something like this and setting the culture and managing expectations around what to expect i think is so important you know the old way that they used to do this is they would throw everyone into the class and make them spar so that you could feel the power of jujitsu. And, you know, ideally that was part of the marketing and you would be convinced because you showed up and five people kicked your ass immediately and you realize, wow, jujitsu is so awesome. I should sign up and train for this. The problem is that's like the optimal case. What often happens is you've got a bunch of untrained white belts. Someone suffers some stupid avoidable injury in their first month of training and great, you know, now they are possibly permanently injured. You know, the quality of their life may be affected. And if they had a bad experience, there's a good chance they're not going to stick with it. So I think that more intentional, communicative approach to coaching makes so much more sense. Yeah. And like a physical cue I found that really helps on the coaching side is I always tell people like, if you're not breathing through your nose, you're going way too hard, especially at the beginning. That's a very like, you know, easy to like be cognizant of cue that um, I find really helps people dial things back and then kind of think about what they're doing more. Absolutely. You know, I've always said that if I were teaching someone jujitsu and I had to give them their very first lesson, right? I've changed my thinking on this. I probably, before I explain any positions or submissions or even explain what the goals of the sport are, I think the first thing you want beginners to focus on is number one, controlling their breathing and number two, controlling their tension, right? So like we talked about earlier, trying to stay loose except when it's time to go, 
right? Rather than just being tense and tight all the time. I think if you can train people to spar from a position of relaxation, where like you said, their breath is regulated, they're loose, they're not too tight, they're not too tense. I think that's good for everyone, but also it kind of makes the the sparring situation more relaxed, makes it less scary, makes it feel less like a fight. And that means people are less inclined to do something stupid. No, I totally agree. I even remember like my first week of jujitsu, I couldn't even walk after because we were doing closed guard and I just was like, oh, I'm going to death grip with my legs for like an hour. Why can't I walk the next day? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, people forget, right? Because your body kind of gets conditioned to jujitsu. But anyone who's ever had to take a significant time off, when you come back, man, like your knees are going to hurt like crazy from kneeling on the mat. You know, your cardio is going to be through the floor. You're going to be so sore afterwards. It just very quickly, you develop kind of a resiliency to that. But I think people forget how hard it is the first few days because your body's never done something like this before. Oh, yeah. It's a totally different game. Agreed. Well, I mean, we covered a lot here, Dorothy, but I obviously want to give you the floor here. Anything on the topic of of training with, you know, both giants and regular sized people that you want to cover that we didn't explain yet on this chat? Not nothing new. I just kind of want to emphasize the fact that, like, I think direct communication is really important when you're trying to, like, make a training room that works for everyone. I've just seen so much conflict arise when people get upset over certain things that their partners do and it's just like you're complaining about it you know to your friend or something but really it's just like everyone we're all trying to help each other learn so I think it's like especially important just to like keep an open mind and open dialogue with your training partners because like we all have something to learn from each other whether you're a white or black belt whether you're like 200 pounds or 115 that's the main point I wanted to drive home. Absolutely. Agree 100%. Well, let's maybe talk about some of the other stuff you're working on. You know, you talked earlier about kind of your forays into business, and I know you've got some really cool initiatives that you have underway. Let's use this opportunity to maybe promote them and tell everyone about what you've been up to. For sure. So, I mean, work-wise, like, I don't make money from jujitsu. I do digital marketing. I run my own kind of business doing that. And uh, one of my main clients or, like, friends that I'm working with right now runs a grant organization called Better Fight Fellowship. And um, I wanted to promote them real quick. We basically give out grant money to martial artists who want to do social good. Like, if you have a social project running jujitsu gym for kids and you want to add something more to that that's what we're looking for it's just like we want to inspire martial artists to take the initiative to use their influence in the martial arts community to like help people who either train or don't train doesn't matter so we give out grants or we do our grant application cycle once a year but i just kind of wanted to raise awareness about that now our website is betterfight.org if you want to learn more uh, or our instagram is betterfightfellowship so for example, like right now, we're funding a few different programs, Third Ward Jiu-Jitsu in Houston, I believe. They're starting up a LGBTQ plus like outreach jiu-jitsu program where they want to bring in more people from the community to come teach seminars or something just to platform these athletes just to become more visible in the community. We funded a boxing program that wanted to add like an entrepreneurship course to help like their kids actually like develop, you know, skills for like future careers and stuff. So that's a 
big part of what I do right now. And I'd love to get more eyes on Better Fight for the future. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will definitely put a link in the show notes just to make it easy for people to find that. And I'll also post on social just so everyone knows. But I mean, beyond that, I just I think it's awesome that you're working on this stuff. You know, jujitsu coaches and martial arts instructors often don't understand the power that they have and the influence that they have with the people around them. And an instructor who's really committed to doing good can make a huge difference. I mean, and this comes from someone who, like you, you know, I make most of my money outside of jujitsu. I have a desk job. And there's something about being a martial arts instructor that is fulfilling in a way that kind of traditional work often isn't because you can directly see how the actions that you're taking are altering the lives of people around you. And if you're doing a good job, you're improving their lives. So I think it's awesome that you're encouraging martial arts instructors to be aware of the power of that platform and to use it productively and positively. Totally. And um, I also want to stress this isn't specifically for like, you don't have to be a black belt to apply to this. If you have any idea that you think we would be interested in, please reach out to us. Like you don't need to have like a leadership role already. I just want to stress that like we just want you, whether you're a white belt or not, to feel like you can become a leader in the community through your own way. So just get creative with it and then, uh, you know, reach out. Awesome. Well, if people want to contact you or follow you or see what you're up to, Dorothy, how do they go about doing that? Okay, so this is kind of assuming you want to disclose. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's just uh, my original Instagram got deleted last year. So my Instagram handle is actually not Dorothy Dow. It's a bit confusing. (laughs) So if you want to follow me, it's not underscore Dorothy Dow on Instagram. And uh, I'm pretty active on there. So if you want to reach out with any questions on like, you know, travel or jujitsu, just feel free to reach out. I'm pretty responsive. Okay. That explains a lot because I was trying to figure out why your handle was not Dorothy Dow because I was pretty sure you are in fact Dorothy Dow. And so I felt I was, I was very confused about that. Okay. But yeah, I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, I'll also put a link to all of our stuff. Everyone probably knows, but everything we do lives at bjjmentalmodels.com. Right now there's getting close to 260 episodes worth of free content on the public feed. All of them are intended to be timeless and educational. There's not a lot of uh, current events type stuff that's going to fall out of date. You can go back to episode one, as many people do, and you'll still find material that's just as useful as it was back when we recorded it years ago. So that's a big goal for us is we want every episode to be educational and timeless. Um, You can also sign up for our newsletter where if you join that, it's free. We supplement the podcast with show notes plus thought pieces. And also we give up a lot of cool freebies and stuff to our subscribers on the newsletter. Of course, you can unsubscribe at any time too. There's no cost. There's no risk. We don't sell your data. So I do always recommend people, if they like the podcast, they sign up there. And of course, the the way that we float the boat, the reason why you're not having to listen to ads for Manscaped and stuff on this podcast is because we fund it through BJJ Mental Models Premium. There's hundreds of people who use this service uh, to increase their their knowledge of the jiu-jitsu game, not just in terms of technique, but also in terms of strategy, psychology, tactics, philosophy, the kind of things that we talked about here on the show today as being more important than just the techniques by themselves. So we've got a massive audio library of uh, masterclass style courses from some of the best minds in the sport there as part of the subscription. We're also launching a series. We've got several actually ongoing premium podcasts that are launched, some of them monthly, some of them bi-weekly. So and we're always planning to expand that. So there's a ton of ongoing content available. And perhaps one of the coolest reasons why people would join premium is 
because you get direct coaching from our black belt team. You know, if you're listening to this episode, probably part of the reason you were drawn to it is because maybe you're in in Dorothy's situation. You know, you're a female athlete. We have what's got to be one of the top online coaching teams for women in the world. I mean, our review team includes uh, Marco Ciccarelli, Brianna St. Marie, Amanda Bruce, Emily Kwok, Dominica Oblanite. It's it's a massive team. If you're on premium, send us your rolling footage and those elite black belts will break down your footage and give you direct coaching kind of at a level of detail that most people have probably never had before. Uh, There's a free trial, so please, I always ask people to consider checking it out if they haven't already. You can access that at bjjmentalmodels.com, and again, I'll put a link in the show notes. But Dorothy, thanks so much. I really appreciate this chat. Always a fun one. Glad that we finally got to connect, and yeah, at some point, I want to have you and Margo back on to talk about the nomadic life, because that would be an interesting one. Oh, for sure. That'll be a party one for sure. (laughs) I'm a longtime fan of the podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. Uh, You're most welcome. Thank you so much for the time. And thank you to the listeners as well. I always do appreciate it. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.